As an industry, we've made it our business to learn about games, how they work, about their resonance, and their successes or failures. But there's a human side to the industry as well. My name is Paul James, and welcome to Dev Diary, a series that explores and celebrates the incredible feats of the people behind the games as we dive into their stories, the highs, the lows, and everywhere in between. In this episode, I'm joined by Jack Attridge, current co-founder and creative director at Flavorworks. So join us as we explore his journey. So today I'm joined by Jack. How are you? Yeah, fantastic. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. You're coming off the back of a, a busy period with the release of Erica, and how's that been so far? It's been wild. I mean, for the last few years, it's, it's been a, that, the kind of thing of just really not knowing if things are going to pan out and uh, a lot of you know anxiety and, and stress and all of that. But the last sort of four weeks or so when the game's been out, been pretty pretty amazing uh the response has been great and uh, just yeah the amount of sort of tweets people give you about how much they're enjoying the game and all of that yeah. every day um yeah it kind of it's, it's made it all sort of worth it and now the whole team is sort of rejuvenated and now we're just riding thinking about what we do next mm, yeah, yeah absolutely yeah, riding away well, Erica is your your current work but obviously this is Dev Diary series where we explore the histories of developers and so we'll, we'll rewind back to the very beginning. Jack, what was your first gaming experience that you recall? Oh, gosh. I mean, I think we ended up getting a dodgy Commodore 64. Um, I couldn't finish any Sorry, of the it's games. It's not an uncommon story, that's fine. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, not only couldn't I finish any of the games, most of them didn't actually load up. Then we got Mega Drive, yep. played a lot of games on there. Um, and it was just always a thing. But then one day we got a PlayStation on my dad's birthday and that kind of felt like games becoming mature and adult like I was seven or eight years old but you know they were coming on CDs like music which made them seem like you know more adult and uh, the game seemed more adult and uh, and yeah obviously the graphics were a a big jump up as well so I remember fumbling around were there any in particular? there was this like T-Rex demo on Demo 1 which is like the first demo disc that came like the first yeah. PlayStation and I remember messing around with that a lot and the opening of that demo disc was really intense like you were flying through all these stats of you know what the machine was capable of and it had this kind of oh, yeah, okay. dancey music which made it just seem like this was an event like like this wasn't a toy anymore um, and I feel like that demo disc almost set the tone for that entire console cycle uh, but it, I think out of the ones in that generation that I probably loved the most uh, probably came at the tail end which was Metal Gear Solid suddenly oh, yeah. this Popular not choice. just because of those those cutscenes which if you're seven or eight years old um, you know you, you kind of just find really engaging and um, you kind of get wrapped, lost in the soap opera of it all because as a seven year old you're not comparing it to other mediums you know where, where like yeah. a storytelling might be done as done better but, but just because it was like wow I didn't know a game could, could yeah, uh, draw me in, make me care about as well. But that game basically sold me on a world, not just for the story, but the fact that like people, you could see like the people's breath in the cold. Um, that you know, when you knocked a wall, you could hear that echo throughout the place. Had a really great use of, yeah. of reverb. Um, there's another game that um, Doom for the PS One 
they used like the reverb chip. Oh yeah, it did uh, yeah, really right. really well. And uh, on top of that, they they had the soundscape was way more sort of atmospheric and horror based than the PC versions. And so even though yep. I've, I've played the PC version of stuff since then, the uh, PlayStation version it's of Doom PS1 for me is still just like. I play it like it still stands up for me against like other shooters because it just feels like being in hell. Yeah, good to hear. Um, was there a particular game over the journey? Maybe it was one of those ones you've already discussed that uh, maybe lodged in your head as something that maybe you'd then go and pursue yourself. Like, was there a game at all that you kind of played that you think maybe steered you towards game development in some way? Um, I think Metal Gear Solid was definitely one of those. And also waiting for Metal Gear Solid 2 as a child was like an 18-month <laughs> wait. And that was... Like, they released a trailer at, in, like, June 20... June 2000. Um, yeah, that sounds about right. the first issue of, of this magazine, PSM2, it was actually issue zero, I think. It came up like a VHS of the E3 trailer. And that E3 trailer still to this day just like makes my jaw drop in a way like the amount of things going on like uh, yep. physics and, and indestructible environments and how just rich the, the modeling of the characters was and actually st- stood up for the rest of that playstation life cycle the ps2 life cycle um seeing the reflections in the floor and stuff which are all kind of clever tricks actually but um yep. the impact i had i was so it was such a painful experience waiting for that game that I basically remember, like, my young sort of determined mind was just like, I wonder if I can make my own game before this game comes out. Um, and would just start, like, doodling in a big book about, you know, my version of what Metal Gear Solid 2 would be. Um, uh, that makes sense. Unfortunately, yeah. Uh, I think he released, like, three more games before I ended up getting a game out, so... You know, uh, didn't work out. Well, yeah, between Zone of the Enders and all that sort of stuff along the way, yeah. Mm. In fact, I remember people were just buying Zone of the Enders just to get hold of this demo disc. Demo, right? And and that demo disc, like, yeah, there was so much you could do in it. And in some ways, it was better because of certain changes that got made for the final game. Um, But yeah, I loved that. It just played like a dream. Um, The sound still really holds up for me. yeah, like I, I'm going to get lost in nostalgia, but I think yeah, those That's are right. the, those we, we all games, do from yeah. time to time. Mm. They stay with me, and so that was that was kind of this important moment for you in terms of potentially pursuing game dev yourself. Yeah, I think so. Just because I, yeah, um, those are the ones where the, the I guess just the, the dynamic difference between all the other games out there and what those games were doing. Uh, just really felt yeah, like sense. everyone was years behind them, um, and it, and it kind of stayed holding up. I mean, there's lots of other amazing games if I really think about it, but, but but yeah, I think those are the ones that are just they just roll off the tongue as effortless examples. Yeah, of course. Um, I mean, you're not the only person. You're not the first person I've spoken to that's referenced Metal Gear Solid in some way, and you certainly might be the last one. I suspect. And so, so it's been a nice um, um, full circle because then we released Erica, and the day. The, 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 we released Erica um, on the 19th of August, I think, at night time yep. in Cologne. But the next morning, I was do- it was like kind of saying to people, it was people waking up and the press saying, this game is out now. Uh, and then that first day, I got to get in a room with Hideo Kojima and, and me and personally and talk about what we're doing and 
get a photo together and so it became very full like a very full circle experience yeah very much so yeah that he was that first influence and then the day we released Erica uh, we met me personally yeah it was um, yeah that's that's pretty awesome the closest I've ever been to Kojima he, he walked into the toilet in front of me at one time and I thought I was starstruck then let alone, <laughs> <laughs> let alone actually getting to you know have a chat to him about a game you've made after being so inspired by his work so I think that's fantastic mm, thank you so where does the journey for you specifically begin? Where, um, how did you first fi- uh, make that jump into the gaming industry? Uh, well, I, I started, you I studied guess, for a little while. with university. I, I thought about yeah. doing a games degree, but only like four, at the time it's like 2007, four out of 280 game degrees in the UK were accredited. Um, yeah. And I just didn't really feel like I could learn from, um, you know, somewhat, and more about, I guess, game design or game direction from someone uh, at that level because the industry was too young no one who, who made anything of worth would have retired yeah. yet um, so you were, who are you learning from so I'd been making like little films and stuff at the time not because I was particularly passionate about it but I just sort of fell into it and um, was getting kind of good results so I ended up studying film production and to me that was kind of always the plan was always to use any skills from that industry to um, bridge over Bring to video games and the one yep. sort of uh, area that I fell in love with the most out of those was sound design. Uh, yeah, like, you've certainly got a little history in sound design across several different um, companies over the journey there, mm. or studios over the journey. Yeah, so pretty much the day I handed in my final piece of coursework, uh, I was lucky enough to get um, a job offer from EA, who were down the studio from us. Sorry, down the street from us, yep. essentially. Um, so that was an amazing... Harry Potter, is that right? yeah. It's um, yeah. it's one of those games where I think everyone who was working on it knew it wasn't going to be necessarily great because it actually was the first time that I kind of woke up from that cynicism that people have when they're outside of like game development and when people oh, yeah. when people dare to call developers lazy and uh, or think people are just um, phoning it in or they're just not very good. It was it was kind of a exposure to all of the constraints and reasons why. Games don't always turn out amazing, apart from the fact that they're insanely difficult to make. Um, was that in this case they had to release a Harry Potter game the day that the movie came out? So you know, and that's a massive constraint. Yeah, especially when those those movies are releasing every twelve months or something. You know, you can't yeah. make a game in twelve months really. And on top of that, uh, somewhere earlier in the line, they decided to use a brand new engine they built in house because it would be cheaper than working oh, with, right. say, Unreal. Um, was to build our own engine. So, uh, yeah, you were d- dealing with completely unproven, unoptimized technology and then releasing that for a 360, a PS3, a Wii, a PC. Yeah, so many SKUs, yeah. As well, and, and it also, they weren't a huge team or anything. So uh, I went in there as an audio tester, which, so I was basically just playing the game every day, learning, uh, working out what sounded right and what might maybe wasn't, wasn't as expected because the sound designers there, the sound department, they didn't really have time to play through the game, you were just getting content in, content in. So I was like the ears on the ground, essentially, because QA would always listen to music rather than listen to the actual game they're playing, because it's monotonous enough playing a game over and over again. If you listen to the audio on top of that, it's going to really grind. So I was that guy, and it was kind of a a low-cost job for them to, 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 to make affordance for me. And it allowed me to be within the kind of 
the environment of making games without being in a position where I could break anything. So it kind of taught me everything I needed to go and get my next job at Rebellion, uh, where I was a full-on sound designer on multiple projects. And uh, and that was great, but it was very different studio culture. And that's when you realize that, yeah, every student studio has their own way of doing things. And obviously a different set of constraints in that time at, um, at uh, Rebellion as well. But in that time, you worked on a few different games. There's a few that I kind of jotted down. Uh, Never Dead, Sniper Elite V2, uh, Judge Dread vs. Zombies for iOS, if I recall that, that one. Yeah, um, that one was what, fun. What, I mean, they're, they're all very diverse games. What, what do you kind of learn from your experiences across those and obviously a few other uh, titles that you worked on in that time? Yeah. <clears throat> um, well, yeah, I guess it, it's very interesting. I mean, the great thing about Rebellion is that um, uh, Jordan, who was Jordan Pedder, who was running uh, the audio department yeah. there, he really believed in like putting everyone hands on on everything. So at EA, it was very much like one person did foley, one person did ambiences, one person did UI sounds, yeah, okay. and they were just categorized like that. Um, whereas at Rebellion it was very much do a bit of everything. So I was making physics sounds and ambiences and spot sounds and then, you know, uh, Foley and uh, then recording actors in motion capture sessions and like everything essentially. Yeah. Um, so it really felt like I'd, I'd gone a full sense of experience of being able to like go into, I feel like I could go into a new games project and basically do the whole sound. And that's kind of what happened with, Judge Dredd, the uh, iPhone game, even yes. though it was a very basic game. Back then, the uh, you know we were still. I don't think the iPhone four was even out, so we were dealing with like really very early days, restricted. Yeah. Uh, actually, it might have been, but we were dealing with very restricted uh, memory budgets, and so I had to basically fit um, all the sound of the game into like six megabytes or something. Whereas Ooh, yeah, on okay. whereas on like uh, 360 and PS3, I had like 30 megabytes, um, and so yeah, it it was a, a whole different thing. And also with that, because it was kind of a very small budget project, I was the only sound designer. Um, so I think they did some like updates to the game where um, uh, someone came and put a few more sounds in there. But I think for the most part, like 95 percent of it was just myself. And I liked that they gave me that opportunity to just focus on it. And in the end, I think I got the sound into like three megabytes as well. Um, you're yeah, dealing with like small, smaller sample rates and um, yeah, just like ha trying to find tricks to make music uh, loop without it actually being two minutes long. It was, um, yeah, I, I'm sure like the kind of things I was learning were probably what people were learning in sound design in the early 90s, but... Uh, it was kind of a very yeah. first-hand way of learning, so it was quite exciting. Yeah, I, I bet. And, I mean, I'm sure some of those skills you've, uh, in different ways, you've been able to bring with you moving forward from there, I guess. Well, yeah, I, I went... In different ways. Well, I went into a few different... Um, a few different, what do you call them? Uh, yeah, a few, a few different studios, uh, mostly as a yeah. sound designer. But then uh, I actually ended up sidestepping side into game design at that point, which was always my original Is goal. That with 22 cans? Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. Um, so that was that was kind of a very funny, um, funny example uh, experience. In that, I was just reading about Peter Molyneux wanting to change the world in the next project he makes, um, and yeah. I loved the sound of that. Uh, and so he ended up accepting a Facebook re Facebook friend request that I don't ever remember sending. Uh, weirdly. <laughs> Uh, and then just scroll, scrolling through every now and then, and just start, suddenly click. Didn't realize you did it, and all of a sudden there's the 
there's the acceptance. Mm, yeah. So then I just dropped him a message and sent him a CV type thing, as he put it, and then had a call. And uh, yeah, it was a really interesting conversation. He kind of told me a very early idea that would become this curiosity game, this experiment about yep. the whole world tapping on a cube to get to this mysterious prize on the inside. And then he said, meet me in a few days and tell, and have a think about what I just told you. So I turned up with like a 22-page document of things that I would do. Oh, wow. Uh, I didn't mean to be 22 pages deliberately. It was just kind of serendipity, but uh, ended up... Um, yeah, just having all these ideas in there, and he loved that, and he liked that I had film school background and sound design as opposed to like traditional sort of education avenue or other games. Yeah. And I think he cool. liked the idea that that meant he could mould me a certain way. And yeah, okay. Uh, it be- even though like all of the ideas I put in that document never really got realised in Curiosity because it, whilst Peter was on the road a lot at that time trying to set up the company, it was me versus a lot of senior programmers who, um, you know, like had a lot more clout and experience in the industry. So that was very interesting because that was me learning how to essentially get my way, get my way. It was kind of learning how to convince people of an idea is worth doing because in that sense, the programmers were were the ones in charge of what went in the build. Uh, So you had to really justify everything and you had to listen to what their restrictions were and try and think how you can ease... Ease the 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 kind of uh, issues that they have to face. So yeah, that was very interesting. Being just essentially put on a game for the most part on on your own, and uh, and just fighting for it to be something. So I guess most most of what I tried to focus on with curiosity was just the the feel of it, or the the kind of it when it was first there. It kind of felt a little bit like popping bubble wrap, which was cool, but everything about the ex- the the idea sounded more grandiose and experimental than that, so I tried to turn it into something that was a little bit more like a, a china object, like a you know, like a like an ornament, um, and something a little bit more yeah, ominous. Yeah, okay. yeah, fully. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah. was Curiosity the only title you worked on at Twenty Two Cans, or did you have a bit to do with um, uh, Goddess? Goddess. Sorry, I was never uh, sure on the pronunciation of that one. Yeah, or sure. The trail. Did you have anything to do with those as well? Or yeah, both. So, um, well, the first the first thing was. Um, uh, as Curiosity was being made, Peter had this idea for a really cool project, um, and I was going to be involved with that. So me and him were going into like a room for six months, designing all the little bits of this project, just hashing it out, and that was a very interesting experience. You know, just the start, just what would be the start of like a three-year uh, experience of just me and Peter in a room um, arguing about ideas, knowing that he always has final call. Um, and he's, you know, he knows that he's the one who's made twenty games that have all generated billion dollars in revenue uh, yeah. together, and I'm just uh, super nobody. prominent. Yeah, so you, uh, so trying to fight to get ideas heard, and that was very different because I think me and Peter were very different. Um, but this idea, uh, I don't know what I can really say about it, other than it was kind of supposed That's to fun. be Minecraft meets The Sims meets Twitter meets Coronation Street. Coronation Street is like a yeah, okay. soap in the UK. Um, yeah, okay, right. So uh, actually, yeah, my I think my wife's mentioned it in the past. Yeah, I, I've heard the name. I'm not I'm not particularly familiar with it, but I've I've heard the name. Yeah. That's an interesting collaboration, though. Yeah, ideas. Well, it was it was awesome, and we were so excited. And even now, this is 2012, but even now, what he wanted to do with it ha- hasn't been touched by like anyone else. You know, uh, but unfortunately, because of 
certain business reasons in terms of company funds and all that, the strategy changed to make Goddess. And yeah, okay. for me, that was a little bit of a bummer because I, I wanted to go there to make um, some really brand new world-changing experimental stuff. Uh, and here we were doing a throwback to populace and black and white and stuff, which wasn't my you know, legacy as Peter's, but we did a Kickstarter. Yeah. People jumped on it. Um, and then yeah. right at the end, I spent I a few months working on the, the trail. Um, but that project went on for like 18 months without me. So it it, it went off a, a lot on its own. But um, at the same time, um, there's a, a bit of the DNA in it is still there from when I was working on those early concepts. And when I kind of got to the end of it, I was, think, I was thinking about, you know, joining another company. Um, but I, if you go to the other studios, you're kind of working with like 20 game designers, uh, like a group of 10 or 20 game designers. And I'd just been used, yeah, sure. I'd been used to it just being me and Peter, essentially. Uh, and essentially, So that sort of setting wasn't really for you then? No, it just felt like you were going to get even less control and you were going to be just working on a tiny part of the game. Um, and what I realized after a few years is Peter wasn't really training me to be a designer. He was training me to be a director. Um, and I realized that since that Peter existed before game designer as a job existed, you know, like in 1989, yeah. he was just making his own studio. It's like these, these roles just came into existence through trial and error and running a studio and, and realizing, wow, we need someone to do this. We need someone to do that, which is pretty amazing in itself. Uh, and yeah, so I wasn't really going to fit into that. And I think the whole experience with goddess made me feel like okay i should really see what happens if i try and make something myself uh where where every decision is on my shoulders and you know like live by the mistakes you you kind of need to own that i guess at that point and like there's that the the pressure that comes with it or or whatever success or failure um exactly so i gave my notice and well actually it's so funny i talked to I, i started going around um Guildford, which is where we were in England, they kind of called yep. Guildford the Silicon Valley of video games because Peter Molyneux started Bullfrog there, and then uh, he left and he started Lionhead, and he was still in the same area. In and Guildford as were, well, yeah. People were leaving Bullfrog and leaving Lionhead to start their own studios, but they'd all kind of settled down or had families, uh, or they were born there. And so, so they were made in the same area. Yeah. So you had like Media Molecule and Fireproof and Criterion. Uh, EA bought Bullfrog and then EA moved as Bullfrog essentially, but now called like EA UK or EA Brightlight eventually, yeah. which was my first company that I worked at, which was also funny The thinking the company I worked at, my first company, EA Brightlight, had these plaques on the wall for like selling lots of copies of Dungeon Keeper 1 or this or that and just thinking like this is technically the leftovers of Peter's first endeavour in games. And then... Um, but then you ultimately went on to work with him anyway. Yeah, uh, but it almost felt like everyone had worked with him in some sense, you know, like his yeah, good his sort of main golden team when he, I guess, in uh, the best era for him was was Mark Healy and Alex Evans um, who went off to make Media Molecule. Um, and if you look at Media Molecule now, they kind of have that bullfrog spirit in what they in the, what they make, um, and it kind of just shows you how integral they were to to a lot lot of the magic in Peter's games. Um, so you certainly feel in the end as though you learnt more from uh, Peter in terms of 
direction as opposed to uh, design then? Would that be fair to say? Yeah, I think so. I mean, they do overlap, of course, but... Um, oh, yeah, of course. Yeah, but I think um, I, I'm i someone who's... I, I like. So I've got a designer here, Faye, and she just has skills that I don't have uh, and vice versa. Uh, and so she, she can... She's much better at you know organizing and getting down day with spreadsheets and 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 um, um, I guess just any any diagrams and things like that. Um, yeah, I guess I'm more high level, I suppose, and just thinking about it in terms of like you're not just designing a difficulty system or designing a a, a system, but you are uh, thinking about you're designing the overall product that goes out there and how it looks yeah. and feels and how people perceive it. Um, so and I think that's what Peter was very good at as well. Uh, I think Mark Healy was even saying that once was was yeah he was very great at being that high level vision director. Um, so I think that's what I got from him. Um, so I ended up like going over to like Mark Healy at Mini Molecule and Sean Murray at Hello Games and saying to them like yeah I need some advice I'm thinking about leaving. One I don't know how to tell Peter to this and that um, <laughs> and. Um, and then, yeah, they got some great advice from them. They were really awesome. The whole Guildford games industry was really awesome at, at you know, guiding us on that, me and my co-founder, Pavle. So uh, Venture told Peter, and I think he was a bit, you know, hurt at first, but actually after a couple of months, it became very paternal. Uh, and in the end, he asked to see what we were making. And when we did, he brought Ian Livingstone along with him, and Ian Livingstone made... Uh, fighting fantasy it was like the first sort of game books where you yeah know, yeah uh, he also found another one founded games workshop and bought dungeons and dragons to europe and he also was like the life president of of idos and commissioned tomb raider originally and stuff so he's been around and after about five minutes quite a history yeah absolutely and after about five minutes of showing him and peter uh, a demo for erica that we've been building back in 2015 uh yeah, they, yeah okay. they, they they were like we'll help you out with some investment just to keep you kids fed um, whilst we whilst we work out the rest of the project so that was great so when you were and I guess now is probably the best uh, period to transition into some of the Erica based conversation did you always have um, a mobile interface in mind when you were developing it something that I guess would ultimately become you know Playlink um, as PlayStation's been dubbing it but did you always have that sort of interface in mind from moment one or was that something that developed further into the project well back in like 2014 me and Pablo were thinking about the idea and then in 2015 we shot a five minute demo which is a whole story in itself so, uh, but um, uh, has a, a mental one as well but uh, we were building it for iPhone and iPad and so when you touched the world you were touching it directly so this is you know live action yeah. F and V, if you want to call it that, although I have my reservations about F and V. No, we've we've definitely developed from that point. Yeah, I'd, I'd agree with you. <laughs> yeah, like our thing was we didn't want to be touching buttons on top of a video. We wanted to be interacting with the video itself, wiping a tear from yeah. someone's cheek or condensation off of a window and peering through to the other side. Uh, because yeah. we don't even really get to do that in traditional games, you know, because it's such a lot. It's so much work to do just a. Moment well, that's really fiddly in a traditional game. Yeah. Um, so we were making it for mobile, and actually, like a year or so later, uh, when Sony asked to see us, we were showing them on a mobile, and uh, their 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 um, challenge to us was, how would you bring this to the TV? 
and we were looking at the DualShock controller, and it's got a little touchpad on there. Uh, it's very yep. under, underutilized in most games, particularly if they're like cross-platform. Uh, for us, we were like, yeah, we could use that. It's not, not um, obviously, it's good as a smartphone. You don't have the same real estate. Uh, so we had this yep. idea of using your phone as a remote, where you weren't looking down, you were looking at the TV. And then a year or so later, just by just by coincidence, uh, Sony also announced PlayLink, which had oh, okay. lots of other just games. Just kind of paths crossing, again, I guess, at the end of the day. Yeah, just I guess, but yeah, they were thinking about it in terms of party games. We were thinking about it in terms of uh, a tactile interface that could allow core gamers and non-gamers to both be able to use it effortlessly, rather because pressing a yep. button sometimes feels a little bit too mechanical for something that's supposed to be about emotion. The whole press X to pay yeah. respect thing is yeah, you know, yeah that's life isn't know, regularly yeah. ragged on still yeah hugging someone doesn't feel like pressing a button sometimes you know so uh, yeah so so there's that um, <clears throat> but actually by the time um, Erica was out or coming out PlayLink kind of fizzled out and we didn't need to like go under the banner of PlayLink anymore it could just be our app since it was in the beginning so okay, that's that's really interesting that you've clarified that because that was certainly something that had popped into my head when you know when the game obviously was kind of announced it was coming out today, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. It did strike me at the time that oh, hang on, like I was getting sent the press releases from PlayStation and whatnot. And I'm I'm scanning through and after after reading the whole thing, I've gone, there's no mention of PlayLink whatsoever here. Mm. With you know m- myself having a fairly solid understanding of what that concept was, I'm reading everything there. And I hadn't obviously played the game at that particular stage. But I'm looking, going everything I'm seeing here, everything that's kind of been outlined to me during the um, the Gamescom presentation. They all struck me like this is this is PlayLink. So why aren't they using it now? You've just explained that uh, just they've kind of distanced themselves from that from that naming convention, I guess. But that's that's really interesting that you shared that. Yeah, I mean, I think um, yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm sure there's like other PlayLink games that will come out and things. I have no idea. That's that's um, that's all Sony. Uh, but yeah, yeah, I think we. I think we were feeling a little bit like we weren't making it as PlayLink when we started. So it was nice yeah. to release as our own thing rather than to, you know, come off as using Sony's tech as opposed to our own. Yeah, um, your own ideas. Yeah, yeah, it was all like the whole thing is built on FlavorWorks technology, our own engine, Touch Video. Uh, we built from the ground up because traditional 3D game engines just weren't really right for what we needed to do. Was it also one of those things, and yeah, please correct me if I'm wrong here, um, that the if you're getting up there and pitching the game and you know saying it's a mobile game, like, or you know really emphasising that, that mobile phone aspect that some of some of the audience might given that your the typical audience that's watching maybe a Gamescom showcase or something like that is your quote-unquote hardcore gamer, that they might... Um, be a little more hesitant to jump on board if they're realizing that the phone is how they're interfacing with the game, totally. as opposed to a, a dual shock. Yeah, totally. When um, it, we first announced in like 2017, end of 2017, um, some of the comments were like, "If this can't be played on dual shock, I'm not buying it." And we were, yeah, okay. and we were planning to allow people to play it on dual shock anyway, but it was very much like, "Okay, it's always going to feel better if you use a phone." Like. It validated the decision, though, for you to support DualShock at the same time. Absolutely. I mean, I, I, my kind of feeling on it was if we support DualShock and then tell people that we recommend playing with a phone, that as long as the option's there, uh, people get what they'll, they, they'll be happy. they think they want, and then we can 
say to them, you know, hey, but have you tried this? And then wean them on to the sort of more optimal device for this kind of game. Yeah, okay. Um, but yeah, so it's it funny and it was a bit of shame that that um, that's the kind of mentality is, is, oh yeah, if it's not using a controller with uh, 12 buttons, two waggly sticks and, and you know, <laughs> then it's... Triggers left, right and centre. Yeah, then it's not a real game, you know. I mean... It's 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 a bizarre it's a bizarre thing, but it's um, probably becoming uh, more and more of a ex, um, an ancient way of thinking. I think, but it's even funny. Yeah, 100%. The fact that we were live action just inherently turns people off because we just see live action or video as you know uh, less about emergent simulation. And so there's a sense, yeah, of, okay. which is funny because a, a lot of the narrative games that are out there don't. The ones that are like you know of of this kind of genre, I suppose, uh, yeah. they don't they don't really offer that either. But this, the fact that they're kind of made out of computer graphics or, and they're built on these three D engines um, makes people feel like they're a real game. Uh, so much so that I'm always like, if we made Erica with CGI graphics, um, we'd probably get better received. Um, yeah, okay. But, and 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 I think that was one of the challenges with the design. It was like. How would we design this differently if it was CG? And the answer was we we wouldn't. It would be the exact same experience. It's just that we're using video. One of the only things that we kind of yeah. lose as a result of that is walking around an environment. But the feeling was that you know walking around an environment in a game is kind of what I guess you call like free roam time. Uh, I was talking, yeah. talking to a friend who works at another big big narrative games company, and they say that one third of their game is free roam. And yep. it basically means, yeah, they're, they're building two thirds of the game and then there's a third where the player is filling out that time. Whereas with us, every single frame has to be catered and tailored for that moment. Uh, and and yep. it kind of just means that free roam kind of means that you're not, the story isn't unfolding when you're walking from A to B. It's it's unfolding at A and B, but not when you're walking between them. There might sometimes be like a it's just bleeding into the other exactly uh and on top of that uh, if you ever try and see like if someone who hasn't played a game before trying to walk around in a video game it's uh it's you know you realize how how complacent we've become with these certain mechanics that we've built on for 10 20 and 30 years but actually to someone who's not played a game before they're completely weird and they, 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 they don't make sense you know, like why is open- yeah? I'm certainly looking forward to putting a control in my son's hands for the first time and seeing what happens. That'll be interesting. Yeah, but I, but I, I imagine for that exact reason. I imagine your son because they, they remember when the iPad came out, they would take it to like countries that just didn't have technology, like third world countries, and oh yeah, true. Kids would just pick up an iPad so intuitively, you know. Um, yeah, true. There is there is a big difference, I suppose. That's a good point. Mm. It's an interesting interesting state that we're in. How does um, the development of a live action game such as Erica um, compare to the development process when you're focusing on, I guess, a quote-unquote traditional sort of game. Are there much, oh, sorry, many differences uh, per se between the the way you approach the development of them, or is there still a lot that a lot of the DNA that both processes have in common? Uh, there is somewhat. I think we definitely see ourselves as a game studio, and we are built like a game studio. I think if you are making a film. You know, you just have one person working on a script for a while, and yep. um, you know, you sell that script to a production company. They'd get funding for it, then they would make it, 
with this, it's very much like we have designers and writers working in tandem. And on the other side of the room, we have a, a little island of programmers building this technology. And then we have our game producer, and then we have a film producer. Uh, and they take on, you know, different priority. They take on different different parts of the project, but definitely overlap as well. But for the most part, we've had to completely reinvent things. So it's funny, we don't have any artists here, traditional game artists. Okay. Uh, that feels like such a staple of a game company to have artists. You know, it's everything you see. And is that simply a product of the fact that it's a live action mm. experience? Yeah, I mean, with ev- actors, etc. Everything we film is what ends up in the game, other than like storyboard artists yeah. um, who who come in for certain parts of the project. And we don't have any sound designers in house yeah. either. Uh, but, okay. but what we had to what we had to work out was writing and designing as we build a tech, doing little prototypes. Um, by getting friends and family in to help make little projects and then uh, we had to work out how to go from that game development environment into the pre-production of a film then into shooting where film film sets have worked the same way for a hundred years and then we're coming in and saying well in games every game is different because every game is built and sold off of five USPs or unique selling points that are going to make it different to yes. other games and then go through 44 days of shooting and then put it into post-production, put it into... We basically, we built this um, editor for, for Touch Video, which is our engine, and the editor's called Cookbook, yeah. and the uh-huh. idea is we could plot the entire story and design in Cookbook, and then off the other end, once we film stuff, we just drag and drop that back into our tech, and it just all works like magic. And so... Oh, right, so um, you're just filling in the gaps, essentially. Yeah, exactly, and, and then we'll do little things to, like oh, tune cool. the feel of stuff. Um, but yeah, that process meant that we had to build a, a pipeline or a workflow that never existed before, or never existed to this effectiveness. So, yeah, okay. Erica, in many respects, has been like our our guinea pig, our test bed, our proof of concept for what we want to do. Where we made so many mistakes, but this was the project to make them on. Um, and I think like the final product, it it's, it came out um, surprisingly well. But then I guess the idea is... Yeah, I, I'd agree. We hope for the ne- Thank you. We hope for the next project that we are just more efficient at stuff because we've now found the most optimal ways to do things. Yeah, you've, you've learnt you've the process and the ins and outs and the challenges, I guess, that you face along the way. Yeah, exactly. Uh, what, what were some of those, I guess, particularly large challenges that you had to overcome through the development of something like Erica? Hmm... It's so hard to think about um, what there's things that I will take for granted that might sound kind of wild, but um, yeah, okay. well, yeah, for some, maybe someone like myself who does who's not a part of design and those sort of things, I, I understand. But I mean, the the first thing I guess that springs to my mind, but I guess it's more of a narrative thing. And please shoot it down. I mean, with with a game such as this, you've got so many combinations and permutations of different. Um, outcomes within each sequence that I guess that's that's a massive web that you're creating. I'd imagine that'd be one of the, the trickier things to have to overcome yes. along the way. Yes, I, I feel like actually, funnily enough, most of the difficult things weren't to do with the fact that it was filmed and were to do with yep. general risks we were taking in terms of narrative design. So uh, one of my... I had a few rules, essentially, for, for the, the team... One was uh, we, if we use dialogue, we didn't want Erica to speak unless the player chose to speak. So, yeah, okay. in a traditional, I guess, a Telltale game, 
uh, the characters will go off and they'll say what they want and then uh, you have that one choice every once in a while of when you get to weigh in and it kind of feels yes, like yeah. I'm taking turns of at playing the character with the game or with the, the writers uh, and that's been fine and, and I love a lot of Telltale games um, but I guess but that's my, not how you wanted to make Erica though yeah, we wanted to try, we wanted to try and do things differently, and as soon as we try, we're like, oh, I see why people don't do it that way because it's absolutely a headache. You're taking away a writer's yeah, okay. one of a writer's most powerful tools, which is their protagonist having giving exposition, and suddenly we're saying yeah. they can't do that without the player instigating it. But then we didn't want the player or the character to know things that each other didn't know. You know, we didn't want them to feel like they were at odds with each other. So. Uh, just doing that meant that people were having to find a whole new way of writing and then I was very adamant on the player interrupting every 15 to 20 seconds because what I'd found in not just FMV games but a lot of narrative games and games is that you're you're just watching for an awful long time and then you're told to pick up the controller again but by that time you've leant back and you've check your phone you've just started to get comfortable exactly yeah. had a drink and and suddenly you're being asked to be in full engagement again but maybe only for a split second depending on the type of game it is so yeah i was like okay we need to have that rhythm of involvement so we don't um yeah end up falling into that trap and again that was a challenge and uh it kind of meant that sometimes there is interactions that couldn't weren't as integral as other ones in the game but it, yeah, okay. it was kind of a means to an end to to make sure the player never felt like they never forgot that they were playing a game. Um, yeah. yeah, and they always remained engaged at all times. Yeah, that's really interesting. Mm. And so the goal was about fifteen twenty seconds. Yeah, about that. Sometimes it can be longer, but it's more important that it feels like it's fifteen to twenty seconds. You know. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, I feel like I feel like we I'm trying to reflect on that whole thing now, and that I mean. It certainly feels to me now upon reflection that, yeah, I felt like I was fairly regularly interacting with the game in some capacity, whether it was um, some sort of dialogue choice or or whatever the case may be. That Now that I think about it, that, that feels like my experience with the game. Well, that's great. Cause, so I think, I, mean, I, guess, and, I guess you nailed it in that regard then. Thank you. And that's kind of the thing, right? It's like, this isn't something anyone has asked for or that anyone's looking out for. And we don't expect people to, 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 to realise that, but it's just hoping that they feel a little bit more attached to the story and what's going on and feeling a little bit more that they are playing a game. Um, yeah. Uh, and that was our thing, is that this is a game more than it is a film. And our composer, Austin Wintory, who composed like Journey and Assassin's Creed Syndicate and uh, Abzu and all these amazing games who I was very grateful. Fantastic to talent, yeah. Lovely guy. Uh, he explains it as like, it's not a interactive film but it's a game that happens to be filmed, like a filmed game, uh, yeah. or a videoed game. Uh, so it's kind of annoying that everyone calls video games video games because I feel like this is a video game. Uh, this is the video game, yeah. Yeah. So, uh, so yeah, um, that's how we wanted to think about it, um, and I think now we're even we're exploring even more ways that we can have the player player sort of. Um, uh, feeling like they're just they're even more and more involved in a more uh, d- in a deeper sense. Uh, 
Perfect. This is your next project that you're talking about? Yeah, yeah. We're, is that what yeah, we're just in those early stages of exploring, exploring how we. It's very much. I, should, I, I've spent like three or four years in like the this dark, moody, immersed, punch drunk like world of Erica, and so now I'm thinking, what what would be the idea of a holiday for me through a game project? Yeah, okay. So that that big change of pace, I guess. Yeah, it's more like you know genre and uh, and and you know color palette and tone, those kind of things. Yep. Okay. Uh, and we have got something that we think is really exciting. Um, so hopefully, we'll be able to talk about that in a year or so. Um, I'm looking forward to it. I won't, I won't try and flash anything more out of you now. I know. <laughs> <laughs> I know that's. I know those sort of things are, are touchy. So I won't, I won't uh, look for you to spill the beans at all in in that regard at all. Thank you. Um, so we obviously referenced the reception for the game before though um, is that a really nice like, I mean obviously it's you, you're trying some fairly new ideas with Erica and um, there's a fair bit of experimentation going on uh, I assume that's a really nice validating thing when the tweets start rolling in or the, the really positive reviews start to roll in um, yeah you- I assume that really helps just kind of boost the confidence and feel like you're justified in the path that you pursued yeah the, the, the sort of um vibe amongst the team is is so much so uplifted as a result and you know we the feeling before it all happened that i was saying to people was you know reviews don't matter people some people aren't going to get it we are doing something different and new even though it sometimes it might not seem like it we are um and not everyone's going to get that, or people are going to go in with a certain expectational frame framing. Uh, yeah. But when those reviews do come in, it is quite nice because it does sort of shake people's expectations for it. And the thing that seems more important is the people coming to you and saying, oh, it's one of their favourite games or game of the year, or um, that they've played it seven or eight times and got the platinum trophy... Uh, watching YouTubers, and I mean, from what I've seen of that trophy list, the the platinum is if you've got the platinum in that game, you've you've done well because there's there's so many as we discussed before combinations combinations and permutations of different events and outcomes there that would mean that you've really got to dive into that game. Do you know how many times you'd actually need to play through it in order to technically get everything? Uh, so I, I I've never seven I, I've never tried myself, but I've been seeing people saying about seven or eight times. Uh, which is wild. Nice. Um, and there's, you know, there's lots of things you can see, and uh, people get frustrated because it means they have to start from the beginning every time. Because uh, specifically, or rather than like a chapter select or something like that. Yeah. So we're a very small team, like an average team size of six. So every, so even adding yeah. something like a chapter select just becomes like another task that isn't something you can just yeah. throw in, but it's going to take someone's time and. Uh, we're trying to like you know uh, polish other other areas of the game, but at the same time, there was something about a chapter select that felt like people could cheat and they could just go and get go to like the last chapter and play all of the endings. And we really wanted people to go through um, and see all the breadth of variation from the very start each time. Uh, no, I don't. I understand that. Yeah. So and also I think. I guess we just weren't expecting people to play it so many times where it gets to that point where they desperately want that. You know, like I think the one of the main choices in the game is you can choose which of these um, girls at the institution you hang out with. Um, yeah. uh, Kirsty, Toby, and um, and Hannah. I, I, I get confused between their real life names and and uh, the character <laughs> name. But uh, 
uh, yeah, just playing as one of those three characters gives you, you know, a very different experience to start with. And then off of that, there's sometimes you can go, you know, one way or another, but then within one of those paths, there's multiple paths within there. So um, we weren't, you know, trying to get people to go and be um, just trying to see every possible thing. Uh, although I guess that's kind of what trophies sort of motivate you to do. Um, so in that well, sense, yeah, that, we, that, yeah. that is the that is the intrinsic thing with the trophies. But at the same time, the chapter select thing also. Uh, my my personal take on it is that you you know select a chapter say halfway through the game, and that means you've kind of dictated a few choices that have been made to you. You don't actually get to experience those like you were talking about before. Mm. Um, so I think it does it kind of robs you of maybe some of the the overall narrative, the overall feeling because you've skipped a whole bunch. Exactly. Yeah, uh, and I guess what's been great is seeing like millions and millions of youtube views like over six million i i, I saw it um from just uh, you know a page worth oh good and uh, uh the cool thing about that is that people can just go online and see these different experiences and there's an incentivization for someone watching the youtube show to maybe go and play it themselves and and explore their own path um but yes yeah, it's, it's, it's it's very interesting i mean erica is very traditionally like a branching narrative game um and that becomes a challenge because in order to make it feel like meaningfully branching, we experimented with um, keeping the story quite vague in places and up to interpretation. So much so that like there's yeah. like five generally major endings and uh, each of them, they don't contradict each other necessarily. Uh, or, and yeah, none, of them, none of them are like a canon ending. Um, what happens is you can go one version through the game and miss a lot of critical information and get to the end and feel a little bit like there is a lack of resolve, which is just something you expect from a normal game or movie or story. And that's kind of a challenging thing, but we decided to take the risk on it. And some people get that. Some people, you know, don't, uh, and that's fine. But it was, it was kind of like a, an experiment for us. And it was very similar to like, a going to an immersive theatre show, which was always one of the early inspirations for Erica, yeah. where the whole point of branching wasn't to give you like agency, but it was to explore how your lens on a story changes based on your paths. So based on what time I walk into this room and what part of this conversation I managed to eavesdrop on, is this person a hero or are they a villain? Um, and Yeah, perception might change. That's really interesting. Yeah, whereas I felt like branching in games had actually mostly just been about you having this, you having choice to feel like you're involved, as opposed to that choice leading to a, a view on on what's going on. Um, but the issue with like immersive theatre is, I've recommended it to people before, and they'd go into these big buildings with hundred thousand square feet of story to find and characters to watch and follow. And if they end up walking into a room just as an actor is leaving it, then they end up missing all the good bits, and they end up having what they call like a bad run, where they didn't yeah, look okay. satisfied, uh, and that can happen uh, with with the kind of approach we took to like branching narrative that has all the hints and clues spread out across multiple paths. Like it's deliberately you're not really able to get the bigger picture on just a single path. So yeah, okay, yeah. that's 
really interesting design philosophy there. Then it seems to have paid off. The reception has been really good. Yeah, it's it's it's, it's mixed in places, and you know some of the some of the like negative reviews I I agree with. Some of them I feel like okay, we we're never going to convince them. Um, and also with the positive, are they those are they those group that you talk about where they maybe just don't quite get it? Yeah, or like um, yeah, just like might just be adverse to the the concept itself, or making yep. comparisons with with other games that really don't feel like they have the same goals. But um, yeah, okay. but there's also positive reviews of some of which I like what they've seen in it that I saw in it, and some of them where I feel like okay, well I. Maybe uh, that I feel maybe I wouldn't have thought about the same way. So, um, so yeah, I've been embracing the negative and the positive ones, uh, but it does seem like on a majority of which people are saying, "Oh yeah, it's a great game." And like at the same time, we came out. There was another big narrative game that came out um, where they probably had a hundred or so people. We only had six, and I think we're basically at the same Metacritic or something. So, so it's kind of nice okay, that good. we can. We can sort of stand up on two feet at the same level as these these real big heavy hitters and um, and give people Still an experience that's worthwhile. Yeah, yeah, good. So uh, we're we're starting to run out of time today, so we'll we'll start to kind of close things up a little bit uh, and get a little bit more personal. I get it, I guess a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, Jack, who inspires you the most in this industry? Are there particular people that you've worked with or that you kind of look over at from? maybe across uh, across the UK or across the world or whatever the case may be, um, that really inspire you in this business? Yeah, and um, I've had a wonderful couple of years just being able to get to know some of these heroes. So, um, and, and really, they do end up being creative directors because that's kind of my experience of being like, you know, the struggle of trying to get people on board with your ideas, of motivating a team, of understanding that everyone's yeah. human and everyone uh, is putting their all into it and, and, and bringing a part of themselves to. Uh, uh, it was really interesting, like last week or the week before I went to Naughty Dog, I was in LA for various okay. reasons. There was an interactive screening of 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 Erica on Hollywood Boulevard with Troy Baker sort of leading yes. the questions. That I have seen you doing the circuit recently on social media. Yeah, yeah, it's been it's been it's been a really good time. Um, uh, and a bit of downtime as well because it's, it's that's the fun. That's quite fun to do that sort of stuff. So, but um, yeah. whilst I was there, went to Naughty Dog and uh, went for lunch with Neil Druckmann. Uh, it's around the studio. We just sat in his office and and talked as well. And it was great because it just felt like talking to like a friend who was also a creative director, except they have three hundred people. And we have six, um, and but yeah. it was almost like the scale didn't matter. The sort of core ambition, the core love of it, the same obsession about certain things was the same. Uh, so I loved that because obviously I, I loved those games that Neil directed and that that studio had made, uh, and it just felt like yeah, there was it, it kind of made myself feel like a legit game creator because we were yeah. able to talk about the same things and agree and all that kind of stuff. Um, so, yeah, Neil's a big one, and obviously he's he's really um, worked his way up through, through the industry and through that studio. Um, Fumiti Ueda was always a big inf- inspiration. Yeah. Uh, and then I got to go and have dinner and lunch and, and a meeting with him a couple of years ago and showed him Erica, and he was very receptive to that. He was like, this could wake up the whole industry. 
Um, and he, again, was someone who was the same as me. He, he just, his goal for him was just to bring games to as many people as possible. And in his case, he wanted to do that through, you know, sub different subjects, uh, which looking at his games, they're very different to most stuff in the market. Uh, so we had the same goals. We were just going around at different ways. Um, and then, yeah, in the Guildford games industry, there's just a lot of really awesome, humble people, um, you know, like Mark Healy, who I mentioned before, um, just yeah. a really approachable guy. I could give him a call when we were like signing with PlayStation and uh, get his advice on certain things. And uh, a lot of the, the founders of Media Molecule, actually, they're all they're all fantastic. Um, oh, that's so, awesome to hear. And I, I can still give Peter Molyneux a call and discuss stuff just like we're used to. So I think that's that. Those are the it's, it's the, these group of um, of of sort of creative directors that have just been still firmly on the firmly have their feet on the ground and are able to stay as hungry and, and, and stay as passionate as they always were. Yeah, I guess that hunger in anything, not even necessarily um, uh, game direction or design, is uh, really one of those most important things in any career that you might pursue, having that hunger. Mm. Uh, also, there's Felix Barrett, who runs Punch Drunk. Punch Drunk being this immersive oh, yeah, okay. company. Um, yeah, like Punch Drunk, I went to see a show over there in London called The Drowned Man. And that was, they okay. got Sleep No More in New York, but The Drowned Man was huge compared to Sleep No More uh, in terms of just size, scale, scope. Um, and yeah, so I just loved his vision that he was able to bring these impossible things to life that has no one's anywhere close to like the scale ambition of how they do it. Uh, that that show made me leave 22 cans and start Flavorworks. Uh, oh, okay, right. Uh, and so I... So, so we blame them, right? Or Peter blames them, right? Uh, well, well, I mean, I got Peter to go to the show as well, and he loved it. He said it was like walking through Bioshock. Okay, right. Yeah, so uh, I've since then, you know, managed to kind of build a little bit of a, a relationship with, with Felix and uh, got to just talk shop and compare what we do and show America. Um, so that's fantastic, just to see someone like him. Uh, yeah, I mean, whenever I just look at yeah. something and I'm just like, how did they do that? I'm just very eager to understand. So you bring out that analytical eye and just really pick through it. Exactly, exactly, yeah. So there's a lot of people doing really impressive and awesome things while staying as really cool people. So those are... That's fantastic and good to hear too. Mm. Um, So any particular highlights from the whole journey? Anything that really kind of, I guess you latch onto, maybe you're having a bad day, but you think back on you know this particular moment that really picks you back up again hmm um honestly I think it was meeting those people that's fair enough meeting, too meeting your heroes yeah, where, in a lot of ways whether Hideo Kojima or, or, or Neil or Corey Barlog or um any of these people who then you know you can go and have informal chats with them just in DM and yeah. just yeah realise that everyone's going through the same thing it's it's really cool, and then it's moments where there's like full circleness, uh, and suddenly someone who games you played growing up, or uh, whatever it might be, just are suddenly you you realise that you are where you always wanted to be, and I think that's it's been kind of like a decade long ride, but that time flies by, and if you're enjoying it at the same time, then you know it's it's pretty awesome. Yeah, good to hear. 
Uh, last question before we kind of dive into any of the social media bits and pieces, um, and one that I've it's become a staple of, of all episodes in the last few months. If you could be credited for any one game that's ever existed, one that you're not currently credited for, uh, what would that be? Oh, Inside. Okay. Easy choice in the yeah, end. Yeah, I mean, I have to, sometimes I panic when you start saying, I was like, oh, what am I going to say? And then I remember that Inside exists and how easy a decision that is. Because I've, <laughs> that game is just probably the most polished thing ever, you know, and just uncompromised. It's Unbelievably brilliant. refined, I agree. Mm. So, I, and, that's a and a really solid title, so. Yeah. Good choice. Yeah. They're next on my list so, of like, wanting to find those people and buy them lunch and pick their brains. Pick their brain. Yeah. I look forward to whatever you might pick from them. Mm-hmm. So, and maybe, maybe that's reflected somehow in this new project or something else down the line. Uh, Jack, if people want to uh, learn more about you, speak to, interact with you in any one way or the other, or of course uh, follow what is going on with Erica or the next project, where would they be best to go? Uh, so on Twitter, I, 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 I'm generally active on there. I'm just at Jack's Flavor, so J-A-K-J-A-C-K-S, Flavor, spelled the English way, F-L-A-V-O-U-R. Yep. Um, with a U. Yeah, with O-U-R, yeah, yeah, with a U. Um, it's important to have that U. I'm... I'm Totally with you on that. Yeah, we, well, we thought it, you know, it would tell people where we were from. And we were like, anyone who couldn't spell it that way, um, you know, that meant we probably shouldn't do business with them. You know, it's like the first challenge is <laughs> Google us, you know. And and then, um, but yeah, I mean, now now being uh, patriotic about being British is a little tricky with Brexit and everything. But uh, but yeah, uh, at Flavorworks is our Twitter, our Instagram. We have the Flavorworks Facebook as well. Uh, that's a little less updated just because um, you know we release one again every couple of years right now so uh, yeah, you're, fa- you're fairly busy yeah but through there you can find me Pavle, uh, me and Pavle Pavle Miha uh, is his Twitter and uh, and yeah that's where that's, that's that's basically where you can find us and then if you have any questions uh, we have info at flavorworks.co.uk website is flavorworks.co.uk and we also have like jobs at flavorworks.co.uk for anyone who's like a writer or a designer or a programmer who wants to push the envelope on cool things and yeah and I, I mean they are they are cool titles that you're working on presumably the next one fits in that same mold nicely and I trust that it will be fantastic when the time comes oh, if, if Erica is anything to go by oh, so, thank you very much um, so Jack thank you so much for having come on the show today it's been really enlightening to hear your story and how it's kind of crossed over with so many other people along the way as well. Um, and he's hoping, like I said before, that the, the next game works out to be even half as successful as Erica because if that's the case, you've done very, very well. Thank you very much for coming on the show today. Thanks so much for having me. Really appreciate it and had fun. And as always, thank you very much for listening. I'll see you next time. So that concludes this entry of Dev Diary. Be sure to subscribe to this feed, share with your friends, and give us a five-star review to help boost the show up the charts for greater exposure. If you have any people you would like me to reach out to an interview, then please find me at Paul James Games on Twitter to help me get in touch with them. Until our next episode, however, that's been Jack's story. Thank you very much for listening, and I'll see you next time.